This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is part one of our Fully Sacramental series. If you've ever been to medical school or have somebody you know who's been to medical school, or if you're a managerial accountant, you probably know what Southern's Law is. Otherwise, it might be a surprise to you. But actually, what's surprising is where it comes from. It comes from William Sutton, commonly known as Willie Sutton. His friends actually called him Slick Willie. Uh, Willie Sutton was a bank robber, actually for over 30 years, and he was very good at his work. In his career, he earned $2 million, which in today's money would be $36 million. Now, as bank robbers go, he's a pretty likable guy in this sense. No one was ever killed in one of his bank robberies, never killed anybody. And he's remarkably quotable. I mean, the guy's sort of like a yogi bearer. He's very quotable. Okay, so for example, one thing I loved is he said, for example, somebody asked him why he always carried a Tommy gun into banks. They said, why do you carry a Tommy gun? And he said, look, you can't rob a bank on charm and personality. You can't argue with that. Okay. Now, another time, I live near the end of his life, they were asking about looking back, and they said, he mentioned the fact that he never loaded his gun. And said, why didn't you load your gun? Somebody could get hurt. Again, <laughs> surrender to the evidence. Okay. But his most famous quote, the reason I'm quoting him this morning, is it's a quote attributed a, a, a reporter asked him after decades in bank robbery, why do you rob banks? And you know the answer. That's where the money is. And so when we're talking about why as a Christian, why should I care about the church? Our answer is that's where Jesus is. That's, the, that's, where, that's why we care. That's where Jesus is. Now, the... Probably this is counterintuitive for a lot of us here. Maybe you say, that's just not my experience of the church. That's not where I found Jesus. I maybe have been hurt by some people in the church. Or I've been disappointed. It just doesn't live up to ideals and things. Somehow that doesn't really describe my experience. So what we're going to look at this morning is, what does the Bible teach us about the church? And how can I find Christ there? He's there to be found. How can I find Christ in the church? So first of all, let's start out with something. Uh, this, by the way, I should tell you is we have the five S's. We're, through this year, we're having a series, a sermon series on the five S's of this church. Uh, remember, we talked about being uh, free to sacrifice. So sacrifice, uh, fully scriptural. Remember, we talked a series on the sermon series on the Bible. Uh, now we're beginning a series sermon on fully sacramental. And then we'll later on talk about full of the Spirit and f uh, for the salvation of others. So this is the third in those series, and it's really appropriate we begin on fully sacramental because traditionally in the church, remember how Lent was a time to prepare people for baptism? Well, what typically the church would do is after you were baptized, you'd say, now you need to really understand what it all means. You know, now you're really in a position now being in the body to understand. So that's what we're going to do today. But first of all, let's ask ourselves, what is the church? Instead of taking, what does the Bible say the church is? I think the number one reason people don't love the church is they've never met her. And notice I say her. You see, the church isn't an it. Organizations aren't warm and fuzzy, something you'd love. You know, we think of institutions, you think of, you call up and you say, okay, your call is important to us. All of our customer representatives are busy in the foreseeable future, but in 47 minutes. You know, 
We'll see if we can do something. Okay. Uh, that's normally the warmth you expect from an institution. But we're told that not only is the church not an, or an institution, it's a she. It's not just any she. Look at the cover of your bulletin, what it says. Paul saying, how do I say what the church is? Here's how he summarizes it. He says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a quote from Genesis. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says the church is Christ's bride. That's who she is. It's the bride of Christ. That's why Jesus describes himself in the Gospels as a bridegroom. Remember one day his, um, his opponents are saying, how come your disciples don't fast? And he says, how can people fast when the bridegroom's still, bridegroom's still there? John the Baptist describes himself as Jesus' best man, quote, the friend of the groom. He's Jesus' best man. So Jesus is a bridegroom, and who's his bride? The bride is the church. Now, we say, where does it, think of where the church comes from. Remember, we have a wonderful passion gospel uh, that we read every Good Friday from John. And John makes a big thing about the scene where he says, I saw it. He, said, he was recording these things. He saw it with his own eyes. He's an eyewitness that when Jesus died, a spear was put in his side and water and blood came out. Now, we might say, and? What well, was so important to the church, they realized water and blood are the symbols of baptism and Eucharist, which are the symbols of the church. That's where we find baptism and Eucharist. So it's saying, remember in the book of Genesis, is where does the first woman come, Eve? Is Adam falls into a very deep sleep. And remember, deep is an, sleep is an image of death in the Bible. He falls into a deep sleep. And God takes the woman from his side. And he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know, he says, this is, and he says, it becomes his bride, and it also becomes, he says, the mother of all the living. Everyone who's born is born from Eve. Well, the same thing is true of the church. The church is taken from the side of Christ on the cross. It comes from here. And Mother Church is the father say, Mother Church, um, if Eve is the mother of everyone who's ever been born, the church is the mother of everyone who's been born again. Okay, she's the mother of everyone who has been born again. Cyprian of Carthage says, we can't have God for our father and not have the church for our mother. They go together. There are a couple. If we have God for our father, we have the church for our mother. And the beautiful thing, what's to love in the church is, think of the three beautiful things she does for us. The first thing, like any mother, she gives us life. She gives us life. That's baptism. Also, like a mother, she nourishes us. From the very beginning with her milk, she nourishes us. That's Eucharist. But she does one other priceless thing. She gives us the gift of language, how to understand and how to speak. How to understand. She gives us the Bible, the Word of God. That's where we learn our native language. We learn the Word. She gives us the Word of God. She says, this is it. This is the Word of God. She teaches it. And she teaches us how to speak it, which is prayer. She gives us the Word of God and teaches us how to speak our mother tongue, which is prayer. So that's why it's appropriate to begin fully sacramental with the church, because she's where this all comes from, you know, where our birth and our nourishment comes from. Now, before we go on with a series called Fully Sacramental, maybe it'd be good to describe what a sacrament is. And first of all, the word in the Bible is the Greek word mystery, mysteria. We call it mystery. And there's actually nothing mysterious about the word. Let me tell you what it actually means in Greek, okay? Mystery simply means something that's real, you just can't see it. It's not, it's not, it's, the senses can't perceive it. So the wind is very real. 
but you can't actually see the wind, can you? So the wind would be a mystery. It's something very real but invisible. However, you know, how can we all know? We all say, well, I've seen the wind. What we mean is, well, I've seen a flag fluttering in the wind, right? Or I've seen the tree, the leaves moving. I can see the wind because I see stuff moving. So sometimes there are things we can see that are indicative of what we can't. And so the Greeks began using the word mystery not just to describe the thing we can't see, but the thing that allows us to see it indirectly. Right? So the, a flag is a, sacri is a mystery right, of the wind. You know, it allows us to see what we can't actually see. It shows it to us. Now, that's the word mystery, the word Paul uses in the passage we just had. Where did the word sacrament come from? Well, the word mystery had a lot of baggage in the ancient world for Romans. They had a word that was mysterium, it's the same word. But to good Romans, it sounded like sort of a creepy word. You know, sort of, yeah, good Roman boys don't get into that kind of stuff. So they said, we can't use a word like that. It has all sorts of kind of, we need a better good Latin word. So they chose the word sacrament. But you know what I mean? Sacramento means in Latin. It's, it's not a very spiritual word. It's very Roman. It's, think of it, if you ever sold a house, you know, buying a house or something, you have to put down earnest money, you know, money to guarantee the contract. The money you pledge on a contract is a sacramentum. You know, it's the money you pledge on a contract and things would be with what you have. So they said, let's use that word instead. So a sacrament still simply means a visible sign of an invisible reality. And so the church says, what's the greatest sacrament in the world? Christ. Christ himself, Jesus, is the sacrament of the invisible God. He says, John tells us, no one's seen God. But Philip says at the last supper in John's gospel, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the sacrament of God. And the church is the sacrament of Christ. Look what Paul says about the church in Ephesians. He says, the Father put all things under his feet, referring to Jesus, and he gave him his head over all things to the church. Now listen to how he describes the church. The fullness, it's in your bulletin on the sermon page, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's Paul's description of the church. It's the head of the church, which is the fullness. That's where you find him who fills all in all. Now, what's the relationship of Christ to his church? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is giving some, uh, rather in Ephesians, rather, Paul is giving advice to men on how to behave as a, to be a good husband. And he says, you know, he says, guys, it, it's the only logical, natural thing to do. He says, the scriptures teach us, right, that they're no longer two, they're one, because God has joined them together. That's what marriage is. He said, so it means you're really one body. He says, who doesn't take care of his own body? That's why guys go to the gym and stuff. Everyone loves and takes care of their body. He says, to love your spouse, you love your spouse like you love your own body. It's you. And that's why Paul says in the quote we had, that's how Jesus feels about the church. No longer two, one, because God has joined them together. So that's what it means. So it's because the church is Christ's bride, it means that's why she's also his body. And this isn't uh, just abstract. This directly affects us. You see, we're told in Scripture that every one of us who's been baptized by, by virtue of baptism actually become one of the pieces, one of the members of that body, Christ's own body. He says, for in one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, it is in your bulletin, we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And that's not the end of it. Every time we take the Eucharist, we are reaffirming, we're tightening that bond in the body. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, because there is one bread, 
We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So because the church is Christ's bride, he loves her. It's also he loves, it's his own body he loves. And each one of us, individually and together, are members of that body. Now, what does it mean to be a member of the body of Christ? It means four things. And again, I look at the first thing it means, vital is unity in diversity. If I ask you, you know, body has different organs and things, what does a body organ look like? You say, well, duh, it depends. A hand, but that looks different than a heart or a lung or a knee, right? They're all different. And you need them all. It's designed for that purpose. You couldn't have a body, just a hand or something, Paul says. You know, you, you need all of those things to work as one. There has to be diversity. It's a beautiful thing. It's how the body works together. And you know, you thought about 12 years ago, I actually had a freak accident. I actually pulled off my spleen. Not rupture, pulled it off. And I had always thought the spleen was a slacker organ, <laughs> just hanging around with the organs that actually worked. I was wrong. I found out it's actually part of your immune system. So you don't have a spleen, you have to take shots. So all, even the things you don't think about, every organ has some purpose it's serving in the body. And Paul says that's exactly what, it, what the church is like. Every organ, they're different and they need to be different because we need all of them. We can't do without a single one of them. Every one is priceless. He says, so Paul says in your bulletin, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. That means we don't choose which organ we are. You know, we don't decide, I'd rather be a foot than a hand or something. We, you know, God has made that choice. Right? That, that choice is made by God. And the beautiful thing about it is, again, God, one of the reasons God designed it this way is so that we would need each other. That's what brings us together. It stops us from just sort of drawing apart. We have to come back together because we need each other. It's, God, it's why God made man and woman. He could have made a world where we don't need someone else to reproduce. Right? He said, no, I, I'm going to create it so that you have to draw together. You have to come together. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. So with the church, you can't just do it on your own. You'll need to come together because I've made it. That's what's going to bring you together instead of just going off on your own. So others are not optional. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 21, he says, one part of the body cannot say to another, I have no need of you. We can't say to the church, oh, the church is nice, but I don't need her. No part. Paul says, this is Scripture. Scripture says, the hand can't say, I don't need the body. Everyone needs all of the gifts. The second thing that Paul teaches us about the, about Christ, the church being the body of Christ is belonging to the body is a fact, not a choice. Look what he says. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Again, think of it this way. Every human being has two biological parents. Through tragedy, sometimes we might not know where a mother is. But that doesn't mean we don't have a mother. That's a fact. Every human being has a mother, a biological father and a mother. If we don't know them, it doesn't change the biological fact. It is a fact, Paul says, that we are members in the church. That's not something we choose. It is a fact. The same we're saying, I'm not, it doesn't change anything. The hand is part of a body, whether it acknowledges that fact or not. So this is beautiful because sometimes we think we need to create church unity. Forget it. 
Church unity is there. We get in the way. It's, we have to see it. We have that wonderful Eucharistic prayer during Lent where St. Basil the Great, he says in there, we pray, reveal her unity. Don't create her unity. It's there. Reveal her unity. Let us see what you see. We might be denying it, but the unity is real. It's not something we do. It's something we recognize. God has done this. The third thing is inevitably what affects one member of the body affects all of them. I appeal to all of us who have had toothaches. I mean the real thing where you have to go to the dentist. Okay. Uh, how nothing else matters when one part of the body hurts like this. You know, it, it's, it's absorbing. He's saying, if one member suffer, Paul says, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Again, because we are bound, whether we've chosen it or not, we inevitably affect each other. This, by the way, might explain what sometimes surprises people why we have confession. Because certainly we can bring our sins to God, but God isn't the only one offended. Excuse me, every time we sin, we let down the other members of the body. They're all in the same body. It's like being on a team. You're on a, a sports team, and one of the members of the team goes out carousing the night before the big game. And because of that, he's just not up to snuff. They lose the game because he's just not playing his game. He's let everybody down. So one of the reasons we have confession is to remind ourselves that all sin, yes, we, in all sins we sin against God, but we also sin since we're one body against each other. All sin is sin against the church too, which is Christ's body. And finally, the most important is from first to last, our growth as a body depends on how connected we are to the head of the body, which is Christ. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, here's what I mean about that. I knew a guy who was going to have some, some brain surgery, and what was sort of scary about it was it was in the different parts of the brain do different things. This particular part of the brain involves personality. So it's unforgettable, he said to his wife before he went into the surgery, when I come out, the first thing I want you to tell me is that it's still me. And so the point is we understand what that means. It's saying, you know, you know without, that's who we are. You know, our head makes us who we are. That makes us us. And that's how it is with the church. What makes the church, the church is the connection to Jesus Christ, its head. If he ever gets lost, if it ever becomes about us apart from the head, suddenly I'm not me. You know, somehow in a very tragic way, something is terribly wrong. Or if somehow Christ isn't ruling in his church. I once had another incident I, in the place I worked. A guy had a neurological problem that what happened one day is he lost control of one of his arms, his left arm. It started shaking. He had no control over it. It's really scary to realize that the head, you know, he couldn't make, his body couldn't make it do something. It wasn't working. And so we should be, have to be completely aligned, Paul says, with Christ. You know, that's what gives the body. Everything is about our alignment with Christ. Now, sometimes people say, well, you know, I know the, the church can be nice, but, you know, really it's fundamentally about me and Jesus, and the church is a nice add-on. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. You understand in the Scriptures there's never Jesus without a church, ever. Here's what I mean by that. Is what's the very first thing Jesus does in every gospel? Not an accident. Remember, a lot, John doesn't repeat much from the other gospels, but he has this. The beginning of his public ministry after he's baptized, what does Jesus do? He calls disciples. From the very beginning, he calls people. And from those disciples, he chooses apostles. He says, I'll build my church. 
He already, now the reason we, we call it a proto-church, it's technically not the church because the church is when the Holy Spirit enters into it, Christ's own spirit, which comes once Christ has, has died and, and, and risen. But he's already getting everything ready for it. It's like in Ezekiel. Remember where the body is all, you know, the, the bones come together and then the skin, etc. And so then it says, okay, prophesy to the Spirit. But so Christ is always, from the very beginning, is always surrounded by his church. And think about today's gospel. Now, you know, when people are, are about to die, we pay a lot of attention to people's last words. It's pretty important, right, when they say, this is the last thing I'm going to say. Well, imagine somebody coming back from the dead. You'd think the very first thing they do would be pretty important. What's the very first thing Jesus does when he comes to his apostles? It says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The night of the resurrection. Receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Why that? That's, that's God's power. He basically gave them authority and power. All the power and authority he had, he gave to his church. Why? Because the church is his body. He continues to live and work in his church. That's the story of Acts of the Apostles. The whole story is Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, right, in the gospel, Luke's gospel. And then what happens is in Acts of the Apostles, Jesus continues to work through that same Holy Spirit in his body, the church. And we might, by the way, miss an image which is powerful in Greek and Hebrew that we miss in English. The word spirit in Greek and Hebrew is the word for breath. It's the same word, breath, wind, spirit. So I folks ask you, if you had to check whether somebody's breathing, like there's a medical emergency or something, wouldn't you be sort of getting near their body? Wouldn't that where you expect to find them breathing? You want to go to the other part of the side of the room to see if they're breathing. You'd say, well, you look at the breath you find in the body. Well, that's what happens. The church is where we find the breath of God, His Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's body is where His Spirit is found. And this continues to this day. I am with you always to the end of the age. So the church is always, there's no Jesus. It's not like a, we sometimes think of the church like the Jesus fan club. That, you know, Jesus had all these wonderful sayings and people say, hey, he's gone now. Why don't we get together and think about him, talk about them, maybe do something. It wasn't like that at all. There was never a time where he had not had a group seamlessly, without a, without a break, immediately goes from Christ being with us in his physical presence to spiritually being present in his church. Seamless. He's with us always to the end of the age. Now, getting to the heart of things, we say, okay, a lot of us haven't had that good experience at church. What can I do to make that happen, to allow God to make it happen in my life? What can I do? There are three things that can change everything for us. The first is to remember we said that Christ, God arranged it for the body, that the gifts we need, others have. So we need to look upon the church as not an add-on. It's where I'm going to find the gifts I need. This is how I build up spiritually. What I need, someone else has been given for me. So the first thing we do is seek out those gifts in the church. And this powerfully draws us together. It takes a lot of humility to receive gifts. A lot of humility. It's a lot easier to be a giver in some ways than a receiver. It takes humility to receive. Remember Peter, when we were talking just last week in Holy Week, is when with the washing of the feet, he said, oh, Lord, you can't wash my feet. He said, Peter, if I don't wash, my, you, you know, you have no part of me. We have to receive those gifts. And it's really powerful. Really, nothing builds up the church like receiving the gifts others have been given. It really just builds the church up. You know, Barnabas, the name means encourager. Imagine having a name like that, and he called the encourager. When we accept the gifts of others for us, we encourage them and really build up the church. Few things build it up as much as recognizing and receiving the gifts of others. The second thing is each one of us has been given a spirit. We're told this. Everyone, Paul says, everyone is given a spiritual gift for the common good. 
for the common good. Here's the thing we miss. Often in ministry, someone will complain to you, understandably, that I don't like my spiritual gift. My stock response is, that's great news because it's not yours. The gifts we get are for others. They're not, get, they're not designed for meeting our needs. They're designed for what we give to others. The gifts we need, they have. That's where we look for what we get. Our gifts are to give to others. And that also, again, hugely builds up the, uh, builds up the church. It emphasizes our mutual dependency. And third, and the final thing is, we have to draw on God's strength. You know, I work with ordinance in the diocese, and early on when I'm telling here's what you got to do and things with the, all the process, I say, you know, just one spiritual thing I tell you is, remember, people don't need us, they need God. Never forget that. You know, they need God, not us. Don't get in the way. You need to be drawing on God's grace. That's what people need. So we have to draw on grace. And where do we find that grace? Well, first of all, Everyone who has been baptized is a trust fund baby. We've received treasures. I'm a CPA. I can't help it. Okay. Uh, as we, we're sitting on mountains of spiritual treasure that we simply fail to open. And when people say they don't have these gifts, you feel like saying, well, you mean you have a cash flow problem. You've got plenty of money, you just have a cash flow problem. Every Christian is sitting on a treasure chest in their baptism that we can pray for and allow to be released in our lives. That we'll talk about them. The bishop talks to us about baptism, about the gift that we receive in baptism. We have to allow that to come forth. And also, we, where do we get that, that ongoing strength for the journey? That's Eucharist, is, you know, we get God's own strength for the journey. So we need to turn to the sacramental life for building up. So, in conclusion, we said, you know, Jesus was called in Matthew's Gospel, Emmanuel, God with us. Remember, Emmanuel, the Gospel ends, it's like bookends in Matthew's Gospel. His name is called Emmanuel, God with us. And how does it end? It says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, God is with us. And where is He with us? He's with us in His church. That's where we find Him. It's not an organization. It's a living organism. It's the body of Christ. It's filled with His own living breath, His Holy Spirit, His life. The fullness of Him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1.23. So the church is critical to our growth as Christians. It's where we receive the gift that God has given for us, for our growth. That's where we're going to find those gifts. Others have been given them for us. It's where we give the gift we've received for the common good as stewards, where we basically take those, those talents we've been given and put them to use as God wants them to be used. And again, the church is not an abstract theological concept. You know people who say they love humanity, they just hate people? A lot of people that, oh, I love the church, I just, don't, I just can't find a church that lives up to my standards. No, folks, the church is real people in real places. Look at the church in Corinth. And one thing Paul said, he said, pagans would blush at one of your, what one of your members does. But how does the letter begin? In both letters, to the church of God in Corinth, it's still the church of God. So we connect to the church is real people. It's not a theoretical uh, platonic concept. It's real people in real place at a real time. Whenever we receive Holy Communion, we're affirming our bond. You know, we're affirming it. We say baptism makes us part of the body. Every time we receive Holy Communion, we're affirming that about today, especially a good time at communion, because that's what communion is about. We come together at the table, and we're, again, we're one because we take of the one body to recommit ourselves to the body, 
saying, Lord, I'm committed to this body, your body. I love the woman you love, your bride, your church. I love her, my mother. I love her. I want to commit myself to her. I want to take, receive her gifts, and I want to give the gifts that I've been given. That's what I want. So why do we love the church? Because of where Jesus is. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.